Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Joining us for this CIO strategy snapshot conversation, glad to welcome back once again Jason Dreho, the head of asset allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Jason, good morning. Happy Monday to you. Hope you enjoyed a nice weekend. A lot to catch up on, so looking forward to our conversation. Yes, good morning, Dan. Happy Monday to you too. We've experienced this interesting weather from New York City, um, seven degrees on Saturday to like barely 40 this morning. So fall is, is certainly here now. Quite the uh, shift in temperatures. And to that point, we've also seen recently quite the shift in investor sentiment. Just thinking back to last week, that price action we witnessed, we did see very big moves across all asset classes, especially Thursday of last week. So the catalyst was the better than expected CPI print, which we received on Thursday morning. But Jason, was that the whole story? Well, let's look at the moves across different asset classes for the entire week. Uh, the S&P was up nearly 6%. The NASDAQ was up uh, about 8%. The tech sector was up 10%. And then if you look at some of the, the biggest underperformers throughout the year, they're the ones that rallied the most last week in, on the equity front. Then Treasury yields fell across the entire curve uh, from the two-year, five-year, 10-year up to 30-year. Uh, they were down in the range of 40 basis points, plus or minus a few basis points, so a very sizable move there. And also what the market was pricing for how many hikes the Fed will ultimately do came down, you know, nearly about 25 basis points. Uh, the U.S. dollar, which has been on a tear this year, was down, you know, 4% on a trade-weighted basis. It varied by currencies, but it was weaker pretty much across every single, you know, major developed market and emerging market currencies. The bulk of these moves happened on Thursday and then a little bit on Friday, but with the bond market closed on Friday, some of the price action was a little bit more muted. To put Thursday's price action in context, um, the S&P 500 was up 5.5% or slightly more than 5.5%. But a move of that size has only happened very infrequently. It was the 16th largest move uh, higher in the past roughly 30 years. Uh, Even more striking, though, was that on Thursday, the VIX volatility index closed at 23.5. If we go back to 1990, take all the days in which the S&P 500 was up at least 5.5%, the average VIX on those closing days was 58, you know, more than double the 23 and a half, which is truly like a, a stunning development. The reason why that, that disconnect is that typically when the S&P is up five and a half percent or more, it's in a situation where there's been extreme market stress, the markets are oversold, uh, and you have some sort of policy change or announcement or some sort of catalyst that causes almost like a relief rally. So we think of March of 2020 during the pandemic when things are selling off, the Fed announces new, you know, stabilization measures to support you know, credit markets or fixed income markets. That provides tremendous relief for equity markets. The CPI print that we had on Thursday was the kind of a catalyst for Thursday's price action. Was good, but it wasn't sort of on par with the Fed announcing emergency measures. So, you know, really what that all kind of tells us in, for the full story is that it was investor positioning, in particular, I call them sort of fast money institutional investors, like primarily hedge funds. Was under risk, they were underpositioned, uh, and what that entailed was massive kind of short covering and sort of re-levering up of their of their portfolios as a result of the inflation data suggesting perhaps the upside is better than they anticipated. So if the match to large, uh, a match kind of going off was the, you know kind of ignited the move on Thursday, the the Fed head, or the hedge funds position was like pouring massive amount of kind of fuel on it to really kind of you know burst that flame into something was was really kind of striking like a very rare occurrence that we've seen so. It was as much about investor position as it was inflation data driving the markets last week. 
So, Jason, while the move back on Thursday was more about positioning and maybe fear of missing out, we know that is FOMO. What does the CPI data we received, Jason, imply about the fundamental macro outlook from here? Well, it was a good CPI print. It's consistent with the data moving in the right direction of inflation coming down. But by itself, it's not really a game changer for the overall macro outlook. Uh, the data was ex- better than expected, you know, at the headline level and the core level, especially if you look at month-over-month data. Uh, for for the headline, uh, uh, consensus was expecting 0.6% month-over-month increase. It went up by 0.4%. For core, the consensus was expecting 0.5%. It went up 0.3%. Then if you look at the various details and components of inflation, it was fairly broad-based, the decline. So we actually had core goods actually coming down, and that was reflected across the different categories. The shelter component of inflation, which is about a third of the index, also came down more than expected. Services inflation in general were, were down. So that was kind of good. It wasn't just one factor that drive it that investors kind of like to dismiss. It reflects a lot of developments that we've seen over the past six months of you know, um, inflation pressures moderating on the supply chains, on goods areas. That all kind of kind of came to a forefront with the inflation data last week. Now that said, inflation is still too high. It is 7.7 percent on a year-over-year basis. Core inflation is still 6.3 percent. So you think about the labor market; it's still you know too tight for the Fed. Um, in order for the Fed to kind of accept and tolerate the massive amount of sort of financial conditions easing that we saw last week, specifically on Thursday, as a result of equities going higher, the dollar weakening, and Treasury yields coming down. So I think that's that's one thing. It's you know there's still a lot of, you know, road to travel for the Fed to get comfortable that inflation can actually return close to its 2% target. And keep in mind that we've often had data points, you know, throughout this year that look promising. The market's reacted strongly to it, only to be, you know, a month or two later, we get data that comes out that is in the opposite direction. So inflation surprises the downside, and then a month later, it surprises the upside. So I think we have to be prepared that when we get November data in a few weeks, it may end up disappointed in the other direction. That's been the story this year. So I think we need to see at least a few months of the data continuously heading in that right direction before we can start to become more comfortable and for the Fed to become more comfortable that they truly can at some point pause early next year. So, Jason, I want to point out the point you brought up in your recent blog, which, by the way, is available now for our listeners, our clients up on UBS.com slash CIO. But the point you brought up in the blog is that FOMO, fear of missing out, is likely to be a bigger market driver in the very near term relative to tariffs. So what exactly do you mean by that? Well, as you said, uh, FOMO is fear of missing out. Uh, and the fear for investors is that they miss out on a year-end rally. TERRA is an acronym that stands for there are real alternatives, meaning there are real alternatives to equities. This is the term that people have now been using in, just in the recent weeks and months uh, to change from the TINA argument that existed you know, one to two years ago. And TINA stood for there is no alternative meaning there is no alternative to equities because at the time bond yields were less than, than 1.5% for, for treasuries. You know, even relative, you know, some risky fixed income had yields that were incredibly low, less than 4 to 5% for, for high-yield bonds, while well, equities still had decent upside. So when you look at the fixing income landscape, you can say, well, there really isn't an alternative to equities. Now with bond yields you know, for treasuries at around 4% or higher, if you go into even relatively safe fixed income, you can get yields close to 6%. And if then, of course, if you go to riskier fixed income like high yield and junk bonds, it's a 9% or higher. This is actually providing a real alternative to, to equities. And so there is an argument that, this terror argument that, well, if that's the case, then could you get investors willing to shift 
out of equities into fixed income asset classes. And if that's the case, that would be a headwind for equities rallying. Uh, another risk asset, you know, equities rallying versus fixed income. The FOMO argument is that you look and say, well, equities could go up another 6 or 7% through year-end. Do I want to miss out on that? Now, the, the terror argument is something that really I'd say is much more applicable to what I would deem long-only investors or real money investors in contrast to the fast money hedge fund investors. Long-only investors tend to be like asset allocators. You know, retail investors should be, for the most part, long-only investors. Well, they have investment horizons of multiple quarters or multiple years, and you're not looking to make rapid and large portfolio shifts. So if you think about then the opportunity landscape across different asset classes, a yield of 5 or 6% over the next year for very high quality you know, fixed income and bonds versus an uncertain out, uh, return for volatile equities, you have to kind of think about, does it, it make sense for me to sort of shift some of my portfolio from equities into that very safe fixed income and kind of ride out you know, through the storm? That may be true for long-only investors, but if you're a hedge fund manager, especially like a macro hedge fund, and you think that equities could be up 7 or 8% by year-end, you don't really care about that one-year calculation. You care about the next four to six weeks. Um, and that FOMO of you know, being underinvested and missing the rally after being a challenging year, it's more likely to drive you know, kind of those investors to invest. And so on a very short horizon, you know, through at least the year-end into early next year, FOMO that dominates maybe the, the hedge fund community is going to dominate the terror considerations for long-only investors. So you might hear these terms come around and used. I think FOMO is what really matters much more for the, at least for the near-term market outlook. So, Jason, running with this a bit further as far as what the outlook has in store and focusing in specifically on the market environment, what do you see for the investment outlook in the very near term through the balance of 2022 and then looking into the first quarter of 2023? Well, I think we can make three observations for the investment outlook. First, uh, you know, the path of least resistance is for this FOMO kind of market momentum to continue, uh, at least for another few weeks into December. You know, but it's certainly not guaranteed. Uh, you know, the moves we saw on Thursday were so large that it's very possible that we can get a bit of a reversal uh, as we start this week. And keep in mind that the bond market was closed on Friday. So the decline in yield, some of that could be unwound. And if you look at the price action this morning, that's already indicative that yields are up at least a little bit. So that there could be some little bit of reversal of that. Part of what's driven the market momentum is that investor positioning, at least in some investors, has been relatively light, meaning they don't have a lot of risk positions on. Um, they're not worried about the markets coming down. They're worried about the markets going higher, and they are chasing that rally. But the more the markets go up and more these investors become sort of allocated, the less that sort of positioning tailwinds you know, becomes. You sort of run out of steam because once you've kind of fully got back in the markets, well, now you can't do that again. Uh, and so I think some of that steam will sort of run out as we move fo- forward. So there's still that dynamic, but it becomes less impactful the more the markets go up and the longer this, this plays out. You know, another consideration is that increasingly I think people sort of believe this is this is going to happen, that the market momentum is is going higher, at least for the next month or so. I think just in the past week, because of that inflation data, that's become a bit of a common view. You know, I'm always a little bit concerned that when everything sort of becomes consensus, does that sort of, you know, actually kind of play out as anticipated now, how this actually ultimately sort of you know, plays out does depend on the uh, you know, various inflation data and job market data that we will get in early December, and then of course what the Fed does in, in December. But if that just sort of comes in with expecta- in line with expectations, again, I think it's more likely that things kind of continue to move you know higher as long as there's not really something kind of very negative or surprising. Uh, and really, the markets are more likely to react favorably or positively to any good news than they are negatively to any negative news. Yeah, meaning, you know, if we get positive news, 
as we've seen this quarter, the S&P 500 is up on average on up days over 2%, but on down days, it's down minus 1.1%. So there's this asymmetry, and that's likely to continue. The second and sort of investment scene of consideration is that, you know, the Fed could push back on this uh, recent you know, market momentum and the easing of financial conditions, especially after Thursday. Because it was such a large move for equities and a decline in rates, financial conditions you know, eased the most in one day it has in, in many years. The Fed could likely want to push back against that you know, for fear that conditions could ease too much while inflation is still too high. Uh, we saw that happen in the summer when Fed Chair Jay Powell gave a speech at Jackson Hole, Wyoming, around the end of August, pushing back and basically saying, we will bring inflation down by any means necessary. It's really possible that we could get Fed officials pushing back, and, and that was the case actually overnight when one Fed Governor, Christopher Waller, kind of made the point that perhaps markets got a little over their skis. Um, so we could see further chatter from Fed officials in the coming weeks leading up to the December FOMC meeting. But relative to the summer, the situation is a little bit different. You know, the Fed has raised rates 150 basis points since, since Powell made that speech, uh, and they're likely to do at least 50 in December, so that's 200 basis points more than back in in August. Uh, we also have inflation and labor market data that is showing moderation. It is trending in the right direction, so the situation the crops isn't, you know, the economy isn't running quite as hot as it was back then, so again, it's more favorable, which means that anything that the Fed officials say, even in strong comments by, by Powell may not have the same magnitude as impact given where we are today versus just three months ago. And the third investment consideration is that as a result of CPI data, I'd say there's marginally less, you know, kind of downside risk for growth and equities, you know, over the next six to 12 months. And the upside risk for interest rates in the U.S. dollar has also kind of come down a little bit. Um, and that's because inflation is a little bit lower. It means the Fed at the margin has to do a little bit less you know, hiking, which reduces the risk of you know much slower growth or hard lending for the economy, and then the Fed raises rates you know a little bit less than expected, or at least part of what we anticipated as of last Thursday. The path for rates going much higher or the dollar going much higher that's also become a little bit narrower. Uh, but even though the the downside tail risk is a little bit lower and the upside tail risk for rates is a little bit down, the economy I think still has you know, for fat tail risks when we think about where we're going to be one year from now. This is something we talked about last week, Dan, that, uh, you know, there's sort of, you know, definitely a high probability of, you know, a soft landing or decent probability of soft landing. There's also a decent probability of a, a quite of a hard landing as opposed to a base case of, you know, kind of muddling through of very mild recession. As the data comes in, you know, the markets are going to respond to it. Um, and given the position that we talked about, it can be very sensitive to any new data point that's either positive or negative or any Fed utterance, and so you get more large market swings. That's what we talked about last week, and, and you know, to an extent that we you know, wouldn't have even anticipated, the very large move last Thursday. That market dynamic is likely to persist. Um, and, you know, even though we got better inflation data, it's still too high. The labor market is still too tight for the Fed to kind of tolerate too much further easing of financial conditions. So even investor FOMO momentum, you really can't overcome that sort of fundamental headwind. If that's the case, I think the one thing we can say with some more certainty is that large market swings, you know, from week to week, even in some cases from day to day, that's likely to be the dynamic for the rest of this year and into the first quarter next year until we get really more clarity on 
the ultimate path for inflation for what the Fed is going to do. Jason, very helpful to hear your interpretation of last week's market action. It did catch the attention of many and helpful to hear about CIO's very near-term investment outlook. And that can, of course, help inform investment decision-making. So, Jason, thank you very much for joining us here on the CIO Strategy Snapshot. Wish you a great week ahead. Looking forward to picking back up with our conversation again soon. Thank you, Dan. Yeah, have a great week. Thank you, Jason. Today, we have been joined by Jason Dreho, the head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Again, I will point our listeners, our clients to Jason's recent blog, which Jason tied into our conversation this morning, is available up on UBS.com slash CIO. For clients of UBS, you can reach out to your UBS financial advisor to receive a copy of Jason's blog directly. Again, that title, FOMO Greater Than Terra, available up on UBS.com slash CIO. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.